Hi, and welcome to Preserving Palestine by Grazi Middle East. My name is Lina Saadi, and for this episode, I've invited a renowned artist who's known for her culturally and emotionally captivating work. Please welcome Sara Bahba. Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm good. I'm a little tired, but I'm good. <laughs> I know it's 7.30 a.m. where you are, so I'm very sorry for making you wake up very, very early for this, but we are eternally grateful. It's okay. It's totally worth it. I'm very happy to be here. We're so glad to have you as well. I'm such a big fan of your work and just everything that you do. And I mean, everyone that's listening, I'm sure knows who you are. But some might be surprised that you are actually Palestinian um, because I only found out recently. So can you tell me a bit more about your background and your ethnicity? Yeah, of course. Uh, So both my grandmas are from Yaffa in Palestine and my dad's dad is from Vid El Sabet, I believe it's called, which um, I think in now they call it Bersheba. And yeah, my uh, granddad was living um, in Palestine through up until 1948. And then uh, the Israeli occupation force came to his orchard farm and they were like, can we buy this off you? And he said, no. And the next day they came and bulldozed the land and forced them out. Um, and so my granddad moved to Ramallah. And in 1949, my dad was born in Tabor. Um, and then, yeah, they, they lived there for five years and my granddad actually ended up working for the Israeli occupation force, making them like horse shoes. And like he was basically a slave to their military um, and they were very poor. And then I think the Red Cross moved them to um, somewhere in Jordan. I can't remember the name, um, but then they eventually lived in Ilbed and then Qatar and then Australia and then Ilbed again. And then, yeah, they, they kind of moved around. Um, and then my mother, um, so her mom, yeah, was born in Yaffa. And when she was 13, her dad and her uncle, um, they wanted to flee. So they married her off to um, a Jordanian man. Um, and then she ended up having seven children with him and she lived in Jordan and whatnot. So both, both of them had to um, leave Palestine at some point in their life. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, and then my parents immigrated to Australia in the 80s. So, <laughs> and then I was born. And- <laughs> So where were you born? Were you born in Australia? Yeah, I was born in Perth, Western Australia, a small little beach town city. It's very, very quaint. <laughs> mm-hmm. And have you ever visited Palestine? I really, really want to. I haven't yet. And it's because I wanted to go back with my parents. And for the longest time, they were like, no, we don't want to go back. We don't want to go back. We can't go back. And Every year I would ask them, like, can we go to Palestine this summer? Or They're both very resistant because it obviously brings up a lot of their, their trauma and their, their pain. But um, this year I spoke to my dad and I was like, can we go? And my mom's like, la, la, like in the background yelling on the phone. And 
I, I think they said yes, so I'm going to hold them to it and um, hopefully we can go this year. That's amazing. You, you, you should let me know how it goes. Okay, I will. <laughs> um, but then it's, um, it's sad because my, my dad is like, it's like, what are we going back to? Like I interviewed them last year for my book and I have this very, very sweet recording of them speaking of their like life over there and it's heartbreaking hearing my dad talk about it like I was sobbing because you know you can feel an immense amount of grief um when he speaks of what it was versus what it is now he's like it's not home he's like I don't have a home anymore he's like they took Mm -hmm. it away from us it's like real anger and I don't think he's actually processed it yeah yeah it really is I mean it's a very similar story for my parents as well so so I understand the trauma of you know, being afraid to go back and relive all of that pain and, and you know, heartache. Um, but I do hope that one day you can visit. Um, so how would you describe your relationship to Palestine? I mean, obviously, you've never been there, but you do seem quite attached to it through maybe your parents' stories. Would you say that you are attached? It's my identity. And just because I wasn't born there, it doesn't mean I'm not Palestinian. It's it's my my life. It's my blood, you know. And my parents raised me to be a true, like, Palestinian woman. <laughs> so, um, you know, even though they immigrated and I was born in Australia, everything in our household upholded the Palestinian standard. From the food we ate to the way we, like, communicate. Like, everything is through and through Palestinian. So... As for your work, you create these really amazing, heartfelt, emotional, relatable, um, and visually and you know emotionally stimulating stories through images, which I find so incredible because you barely use any words and yet you can evoke such emotions with just the, the images that you capture, that you take. Um, and I really can't think of anyone that does anything similar to you. Um, unless, you know, they're copying you. Um, I wanted to ask, how did you come to use this exact sort of medium of art? How did you discover it? And how would you even describe it? Yeah, so um, from my childhood, I very much was an introverted child. And I used to go and sit in a living room by myself while the chaotic Arabs gathered in the, in the room next to me. And um, and it was always during like a, a Zoom, So like whenever the house was just like very, very full of people, I would feel this immediate need to escape and like go and sit with myself. And in those times, I would just like lay back on a sofa and you would, if anyone walked past, they would just see me like sitting there by myself. And I would just think... I would dream of a playground away from my reality. I would create these worlds in my head where I could escape if I felt anxious and it would help me organize the chaos in my brain. And I could paint my world to be how I want it to be versus what it felt like in reality. And that manifested into my art as an adult. Um, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. And once I get at a thought, I need to, I basically spiral until I can get to a solution of where that thought came from. And so in those times of being in my obsessive spirals, I create these worlds in my head 
to to organize my thoughts. And so when you look at my art, what you see is a manifestation of my obsessive thinking. <laughs> and um, it, I paint them in very romantic pictures so it can um, help me escape the thought in the in the first place or help me process the thought in the first place, depending on how intense the thought was. And, um, I, yeah, I started, um, writing these one liners like, and you know, you see them in my work and I actually do the writing first. So in, when I'm trying to get out of, um, a obsessive state, I will write these witty one liners because that's what my brain is processing at the time. And then once I have enough of them um, and I feel like I've really processed my experience or my trauma, that's when I'll go and do a shoot and um, I'll build these sets that essentially feel like I'm in this like dream state because all of my thoughts come from my dream state and my like my higher state of, of thinking in like a different realm. And and then I and then I shoot it and then I piece the the one liners with the photos and it creates this like cinematic surge of like emotions. And for me, when I look back, it's always nostalgia. I always feel like I'm so glad I gave myself the space to create and to um, process what I was feeling, because it turns out everyone else is also trying to process the same thing. So, yeah. Of course, and, and not just that, but you're helping them process their emotions as well through your art. And I think it's, you know, there's no denying that you are probably a very big romantic at heart. And I can see that through your work. And I love that. Um, but I wanted to ask more about because you, you talked about your childhood just a bit briefly. Um, I wanted to ask about that childhood. Were there like any negative experiences from your childhood that you felt you needed to address as an adult was is are those is that what you mean by you know when you were younger yeah um i mean i didn't have an easy childhood um i i have experienced a lot of trauma growing up but um i won't get into the details of that but if we want to center it around my palestinian identity for instance um at school i was ostracized for not you know looking like my peers and a lot of you know my parents put us in a private school and in Australia private school means like basically 99.9 percent white kids and then you know you have maybe three from what I recall but everyone was for the most part white and so you insert this like frizzy head you know brown Arab kid and you know, I, I did get bullied, especially in, in, in primary school. And, you know, the kids would call me like dirty. And like, I remember one time this kid put like a bug in my hair and then he like told everyone I had nits and I was a dirty Arab. <laughs> like, and then like, you know, this white girl would never let me wear her hair the same as hers. Like if I did a messy bun, she'd like pull my hair out. And, like, just be like, you can't look like me. Like, looking back, like, I didn't realize how much those, like, comments became a part of my core belief. And, like, up until I moved to America, I was so trying to hide my identity because my identity came with pain. And that was in Australia. And my, my identity came with rejection. 
And so, you know, I wore the blue contacts, I straightened my hair, I avoided the sun and, you know, I didn't eat because I wanted to preserve my, my child. I didn't want my Arab hips to come in. So I, you know, I starved myself, but my, my eating disorders also stem from a line of trauma. So it's not, you know, I can't say it was exclusively because I was trying to look white because it also came with, you know, control and um, to try and like navigate the things that were happening to me. But um, yeah, so it, it took a really long time for me to undo the core beliefs that I had learned through my peers in in high school and through, and in primary school and through society telling us that we won't be accepted unless we look white and unless we look mm-hmm. like them. And so, yeah, when I got to America, I, I, uh, started doing the work internally and, you know, you have, I feel like a lot of children of immigrants who grow up who grow up in a western world do internalize have internalized racism towards their identity because we are all faced with this rejection at some point in our lives and i had to work through that and now i i couldn't i couldn't be prouder and i there is so much like guilt for having rejected my identity for such a long time but i i try and be compassionate with myself and and you know, I label it as just trying to survive in the Western world. And, you know, it, I would ne- if I could go back, I obviously, you know, would just be true and proud. But it, it does, you know, it's all conditioning and it's all like what you're made to believe as, at a young age. So, yeah, of course. And I mean, it's not just that you survived, it's that you have gone through like a an inner journey of growth. And it's very clear from where you are now that you are someone that is so proud of, you know, her identity. And it takes that, you know, trauma and really deep self-reflection to go through that and to, to, to become who you are now and to, you know, be able to be proud of your identity. So I think you're not only doing yourself justice, but I mean, you're, you're, a great representation for for all Arabs and Arab immigrants, especially living in the West. And you know, I I couldn't agree with you more because I always um, I always talk about the Western gaze um, and how you know, like Edward Said's book Orientalism and how um, the West has will always perceive us as the other, and we just cannot let them you know, influence how we perceive ourselves. I think that's the most important thing. And I think it's it's a matter of just really loving yourself and loving your ethnicity and your background and your identity. And that comes with, you know, um, with tough experiences and with age and with wisdom. But I think you're finally there. I can definitely see that. Um, so back to uh, a bit about your, your art as well. I... I mean, they all. Everyone says that a, an image is worth a thousand words, but you use both imagery and words in your art. I know that you mentioned you you started off with the thought and then with the actual words, and then you make the art. But do you think it would be just as effective to only have words or to only have the images themselves? Do you think both are needed to really convey the message that you're trying to? For me, it's like my, the tool that I have leaned into is combining the two together because it really helps me reimagine my world and my circumstances and situations that I 
found myself in or wish I found myself in. And, um, you know, I really do see the word vi world visually. And um, I, I just feel like it would be half a story if it was just one or the other. I always want to integrate visuals into my writing. I just feel like it wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing it justice if I didn't. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to finding inspiration for your, you know, your series and your, your collections, how do you usually find that inspiration? Are they often inspired by your own life experiences? Yeah, uh, every series I've ever created stemmed from me trying to process a situation. So it's all, every word that you read, every visual that you see stemmed from processing emotions and me trying to manage my emotions. Can you give me an example, if you don't mind? Yeah, of course. Um, give me a series and I'll tell you the story behind it. <laughs> so my favorite, obviously, as an Arab is Aib. Um, so I'd love to hear more about that one. Okay, so Aib was um, created in 2020. And it was a very, it was actually the first series I did that took forever to finish because I was in front of the camera for the first time. And the reason why I wanted to create this series is because for the longest time I was using women and men, obviously men, but like not men, but women who didn't look like me or look like the people, the person that I represent, a Palestinian woman, an Arab woman, and I was mostly shooting, you know, Westerners or non-Arab talent. And I realized in 2020, upon reflection, it, it came down to the core beliefs that I had about the way that I looked. And I didn't feel like I belonged in front of the camera because I never saw women who looked like me on camera, especially in Australia. And I called my friend, Stephen Bartlett. He's uh, an incredible entrepreneur man. He does this podcast called Diary of a CEO. Um, and we met because he had interviewed me and we really connected. I found him to be such a deep and pleasant person to speak to. And I called him and I was like, Stephen, it's so I'm going through something like I can see myself being this like public facing person, I can see myself being a dancer, I can see myself being an actor, I can see myself being all of these things. But when it comes to doing it, I can't do it. And I don't know why. And he's like, Sarah, of all the people I have met, and all the people I've interviewed, I don't think you're someone who would ever doubt their ability. He's like, but you're someone who doubts the way they look. And and I was just like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, you wouldn't take a selfie with me, for instance, because you were scared you would look horrible. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And he's like, he's like, I think there's a Pandora box inside of you waiting to be open. And once you open it, you'll be able to figure out why you don't feel like you belong in front of the camera. And so then the pandemic happened and I took myself to the desert. And I literally every day I would like, write from my earliest memories the beliefs that I had about myself based on the experiences that um or the traumas that I experienced sorry and it was like pages and pages and pages of like memories of things that you know someone said to me from an early age 
all the way through to something someone said to me a week ago. And every day I would sit with that memory. I would do it in a child meditation and go back to it and then do a healing around it. And by the end of it, I felt confident enough to to challenge myself to be in front of the camera and just see what happens. And so with the dialogue, the subtitles you see in Ebb, they were a combination of all the series I had done in the past, um, like my favorite ones. Um, and then I staged them in this like house and I, you know, decorated it with like, you know, the food that we eat. And like, there was like canafe and oh, I like literally day. There was a shisha and I think there was a Vimto bottle or something. I'm pretty sure. Actually, Baba Ganoush, that was literally everything. Um, and, and I reimagined all of the series that I ever did, but with my identity painting the picture entirely. And for the first time, I also included Arabic subtitles because I really wanted to be like, this is, I am Arab through and through. And, and then I released it and it was, it was, a, the impact it had was tremendous. I have, I literally am still, sometimes I'll read through all the messages I got. There's thousands and thousands of Arab women just being like, wow, thank you for doing this. And and it's it was it's so inspiring and I'm so happy that I had pushed myself to do it. But then I like kind of after it I kind of fell back in the trap of being like, Oh no, I don't want to be in front of the camera but like even though there wasn't a single negative comment aside from like the extremist um Arabs on like pages Instagram pages that like would call me a Sharmuta and like uh, a woman of the street and all of the but it was such a minority. It was like 0.1% and like it didn't outdo the hundreds of thousands of people that celebrated the series you know um yeah but that's an example of of one series that stemmed from my experiences <laughs> that's honestly why I loved that series so much so thank you from the bottom of my heart you know from every Arab woman thank you so much for being brave enough to to stand up there and, you know, do something that embraced us all and embraced all of our, you know, our fight for female liberation as, as Arab women. Um, you really have, you know, made a mark on that. So thank you. Thank you for receiving it. Thank you. That's so kind. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking about, you know, uh, raising um, Arab children and especially little girls, what advice would you give our parents when they raise their children just to ensure that they don't grow up feeling ashamed of them themselves? I, oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of it stems from, you know, uh, the way our parents raise us stems from the way they were raised. And so there's a lot of generational cycles that aren't being broken and if I could give any advice, I mean, I try and give this advice to my parents all the time. <laughs> like, um, I just try and help them process their emotions and like rehash the things that they're too afraid to revisit in their brain because obviously they're harboring a lot of like resentment or pain and grief. And I would just, I would just ask them to, to process, process and process it and go back and 
meditate and do therapy trying to get parents to do therapy and they're like 60s and 70s it's never going to happen not in my family anyway I try and be a voice for them or a space for them where they can just like talk about the things that they they're too afraid to reflect on um Mm -hmm. because if our parents raise our children based on trauma unprocessed trauma then that trauma is going to get carried on and so then my advice to our children is to break the generational (laughs) trauma like to break the gap to break the cycle and and you know make sure it doesn't carry on for future generations so Mm -hmm. understand that you are likely carrying your parents trauma as well as your own and to do the work to release both of them so that your children and their children will not have that trauma with them. Mm-hmm. That's very, very great advice. And the fact, especially as, you know, Palestinians, especially, we already have so much generational trauma. I mean, we've got enough on our plates. So to have also society's opinions and all of these unnecessary judgments affecting us is really just so harmful. Um, especially to younger generations. And, you know, obviously my parents as well are from a different generation and they lived in Palestine. So they have a very different mindset um, to me at least. But, you know, I've always told them to try to keep an open mind and to realize that the world has changed and roles have changed. And, you know, a woman isn't just a housewife. A woman can be so much more and I'm so grateful that my mother also was you know she was the only female in her engineering class Uh, she studied engineering at university and she was the only female so I've always thankfully had that strong female um, you know role model to go off of but that doesn't mean that there isn't trauma as well and I think that people need to realize it and then process it just like you said Um, So my last two questions are the same two questions I ask almost every guest on preserving Palestine. So the first one is, if you could meet any Palestinian, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I would say Mahmoud Darwish. Um, He's one of my favorite poets. I really feel like he gave a voice to all Palestinians. and then, can I have two answers? <laughs> sure, you can have as many. <laughs> um, I would just love to meet, like, um, my great-grandparents. I never got to meet them. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like there is so much history we didn't get to learn because my parents don't remember. And I, w- I want to I be able to know, like, more of, like, the people that I've come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's really beautiful. And I think... It's very fitting that you would say Mahmoud Darwish because, you know, I feel he's also a very romantic poet and you you are very similar to that, you know? You're creating romantic art. Really, romantic I art. really resonate with, like, his words. Mm-hmm. It's just so beautiful. It's so special. Yeah. I'm a big fan. It really is. Yeah, same here. And my last question is, what, in your opinion, is the best and the worst part about being Palestinian? The best part is, you know, the people and the culture that we come from is so built on love and indulgence and celebration. 
you know, we love to dance, we love to eat the food that we cook, like a, a quiet dinner in a Bahba household was always a table full of food. And like, you know, there wasn't a place you could put uh, olives because my mom had cooked mansaf all, all day. And then she also decided to make insakhan and hummus and we have the pickles and the every like the being Palestinian to me means being loved and celebrated and adored and fed. Um, and the worst part about being Palestinian is the fact that they're trying to take it away from us and we're being robbed of our identity. Yeah. Wow. That was so emotional and so to the point and just really heartfelt. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was such a lovely pleasure speaking to you. And again, thank you so much for everything you're doing, not just to all Palestinians, but, you know, to all young women they really really need someone like you um to learn from so thank you so much i mean i wish i had you when i was much younger you know i wish i wish you were doing your art way earlier <laughs> oh no thank you and thank you for creating a space where we can exist and you know celebrate you know who we are it's amazing i really appreciate it thank you so much My name is Lina Saadi, and we thank you for listening to this episode of Preserving Palestine by Grazia Middle East. Tune in for a new episode next Wednesday.